The EMS Garage is a production of emsradio.com. You can find us on Facebook. Just search EMS Garage. You can find us on Twitter at EMS Garage. Email us, emsgarage at gmail.com. Or call us, 303-720-6001. The EMS Hello, everybody, and welcome to the EMS Garage. I am Chris Monterey, your host, and welcome to this special edition on Thanksgiving Day. If you have eaten your turkey, please take your nap before you listen to the podcast because you'll wake up halfway through going, what are they talking about? Uh, I've done that before. And uh, hopefully you're watching football and doing all kinds of fun things. And uh, we're just thankful that you listen to our podcast. I uh, am Geeky Medic on all those websites. And we were just talking about hunting. If you want to listen to the end of the show, there might be a couple little snippets at the end of the show about hunting, which was kind of fun. So I uh, have a full podcast today for your listening pleasure. Um, a few of them are on duty, and we're doing this as a special morning edition of the EMS Garage. So Kyle is chatting with me, so I'll wait till he says something. Um, but first, joining me all the way from Center Learn, the capital of Wisconsin, the main office in his own home office, Greg Freeze. How are you, sir? Well, Chris, I'm actually on the road today and not oh. on my home office, but I am in Wisconsin uh, spending uh, the holiday with uh, my in-laws and um, just uh, working today, um, I guess, working slash podcasting. Uh, so, yeah, it's a good time of year. I love uh, Thanksgiving's my favorite holiday, and pumpkin pie is my just top favorite thing about the food we'll eat tomorrow. Very cool. Well, uh, I love, I'm sorry, Kyle's, I, I, I love pumpkin pie. And uh, who else do you like the, I like the cranberry sauce with the stuffing. You kind of get one of each in the bite. Oh, man, that's like the best. I don't know why. Don't you agree? Does anybody agree with me on that? Man. I'm not that. much for cranberry sauce, oh. but I like uh, stuffing. And one of the best stuffing recipes I've had had both uh, Italian sausage and pecans in it. And wow. That was always just, uh, I thought that was delightful. Two of my favorite things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were actually, before we went on the air, talking about the vegetarian phase that I went through at one point in my life. And the thing that uh, snapped me out of it was I couldn't stand to eat pizza any longer without pepperoni and sausage. Oh, yum. So. Well, you could have been kind of like a pseudo-vegetarian, you know, just pick and choose what you want to be a vegetarian around, right? Yeah, I'm uh. much happier now as an opportunarian. <laughs> I'll eat whatever is presented. <laughs> nice, I like that. Well, thanks, and thanks for joining us all the way from the uh, family's house there in Wisconsin. I appreciate Glad it. Glad to do it. Uh, also joining us today is Mr. Brad Buck, who's on duty, and if he has to run, we'll, we'll certainly understand. Hello, sir. Good morning. Good morning. How have you been? I've been very good. And yourself? I'm doing well. Um, later in the show, I want you and Matt to talk about a new podcast we'll be doing here very shortly on the EMS Radio Network. I know. Yeah, we're doing another one. Can you believe it? I still haven't even got EMS Geek off the ground, and we're starting a new one. So anyway, but uh, we'll talk about that soon. <clears throat> Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and Mr. Scott Keir. Hello, sir. Good morning from the East Coast. Good morning. Hey, uh, I know it is morning. You know, it's uh, if, you're, if you're at all interested in skiing, come now. The snow here in Vail is awesome. It's dumping oh. as I speak. Fantastic. And, yeah, you should come. It'd be a lot of fun. So uh, thanks for joining us, Mr. Scott Keir. Yes, sir. Right on. Mr. Matt Fultz, the very first time he's been on the show. Um, where have you... Uh, 
People have to stop chatting with me because I'm I have real AEDD this morning. I've had too much coffee. Matt, uh, where are you from? And tell us a little bit about who you are and and what you do because it's your first time on the garage. Although you've been on apparently Kyle's show, Pfft, whatever. And don't uh, even go there. Don't start. <laughs> and no. Matt, if you ever play darts, you got to play on the first few moments team. Oh gosh, I'll never. That is true, Matt. You do have to play on the first few moments team, but. Uh, the EMS Garage has much, much, much better looking candidates and players. I, well, we do have Chris, excluding Chris. Thank you. We do have better distractions. That's for sure. Yeah, that's right. That's why you want to be on the first few moments. <laughs> I agree. I think I'm going to defect to your team next time too. <laughs> well, I think I think the wife is coming, and she's going to be my distraction there. Oh man! Week, All right, on. Okay, cool. All right, so Matt, tell us who you are, where you're from. Well, thank you, Chris. Thanks for having me on today. I am a paramedic in central Iowa. Um, just kind of been in EMS for, for a while now and um, had my critical care endorsement uh, not all that long ago. So uh, just kind of trying to get better at what I do here. Um, just trying to keep learning and, and uh, keep researching and doing all that stuff. So um, again, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, no problem. Well, and I'm I'm glad that uh, Brad introduced us, and uh, we'll make you a semi-regular on the EMS Garage. So thanks Excellent. for coming on. That'd be great. Right on. And uh, as for the darts, I, I, somebody's going to teach me. Oh. You know, okay, then you can player, definitely be on Kyle's I'm, team. <laughs> I'm willing to learn. It's a pretty innate skill to just pick something up and throw it. So <laughs> it's, it's pretty straightforward. All right, I'll plan on that then. It's it's more right. it's more pushing the dart, not throwing it. Remember that it's more push. You gotta chuck it. No, well, yeah, that's true. Uh, also joining us all the way from Texas, hopefully not too sleep deprived this week, Mister James Warmoth. Hello, sir. Hey, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing good. I just got off shift actually oh. about 20 minutes ago. Right on. So you're happy and sleepy. Yeah. Yeah, so you're yeah. punchy like the rest of us. Sweet. Yeah. Right on. Well, thanks for joining us. And finally, last but mm, definitely not least, is Mr. Kyle David Bates, our favorite in-house image guy and all-around great guy. So, oh, stop. I know. I'm stop. sucking up now because I want sucking something. sucking up. What do you want now? Oh, I'll tell you later. No, I'm teasing. Oh, great. <laughs> hey, how are you? I'm good. How have you been? Are you staying home for the holiday? No, we are actually traveling to Maryland. Ooh. Very Actually, nice. down in the Baltimore area, at the in-laws driving. Oh yeah, uh-huh. good time. I like it. I like to drive. It's fun. I don't. It's a good drive. Very cool. Well, thank you guys for coming on this special episode of the EMS Garage on a morning. Maybe we'll do more of these if I ever get a real job, um, and I can or a fake job. I don't really know what I have now. Uh, anyway, um, so coming. Let's talk first about. Well, I don't know. I, I want to talk about the IAFC thing. Um, talk, they launched a new EMS resource manual. We're going to also talk about Can They Refuse Care by a article by Mr. Kelly Grayson. I was calling doctor. But first, I want to talk about a story that aired here in Colorado um, recently. And it was, a, it, was from the, it was from Nine News, and it was more of an investigative report about Aurora Fire, who... The title of the article is Scene Safe, quote-unquote, Protocol Keeps Aurora Fire Paramedics from Helping a Man Bleeding to Death. Or from from Helping a Man Bleeding to Death. The story goes on to say that basically um, a bunch of people were standing around this guy after he got shot. Aurora Fire waited, as they should, until they got the... Because there was an active shooter, they didn't really know where he was at. Um... They ran around or they stood by at a safe distance till the police officers got there, said the scene was safe, and then went in and apparently, I don't know if the guy died or not. I don't really remember if it said, but people are in an uproar because they waited. It kind of brings back that memory of the Alabama story recently. And is the press really understanding what we do and or to the public and what, what's really the problem here? So I'll let you guys talk about that. I think, the Chris, the one thing that you didn't mention is that the police were on scene calling for the medics at that point in time, where you go to the previous situation in where was it, Missouri, Mississippi, where the gentleman was stabbed and, and AMR didn't go in, and 
the councilman had an issue with that. I think we're looking at two different issues here because there, there's no police on scene. Here, there are police officers on scene with this guy. And I think that's going to be the major difference on that. It's not like they, you know, they arrived on scene, they heard a shooting, they staged, which is appropriate till police arrive. And then police were like, we need them in here. It's time to come in. That, I think, is where the difference arises with us. Well, that's a good point here. Um, and I thought it was interesting, too, that the fire department was trying to say that the, the police officers were in over their heads as far as the, I guess it was on the treatment um, of the of the patient. Well, okay. they took this guy in the police car. Right, exactly. <clears throat> but the thing is, from my understanding, is they didn't use the, you know, supposedly for the fire to move in, the police have to use the term scene safe. Is that correct? I think that's how I read right. the story. Right. They have to use the actual term scene safe. Well, they never said that, so they refused to move in. And I think in that situation, with everyone being very tense and, and stressed out, they probably forgot those words. To them, just get them in here, get them in here. Assuming that that radio chatter saying "get the paramedics in here" isn't assumed, the scene is safe. Get them in here. Uh, well, I've done—I don't know—I've probably been stupider in my career than I should have been. But I've gone in when, if as long as I know there's a cop there, I'm like, hey, I can. I feel that most of the time they have our back, and they'll be. You know, and if there's only two cops there for an active shooter, sure. I'm sure there's other cops in the area checking around for the guy. But, you know, I think it's a judgment call. And you, as as the people sitting on that vehicle, need to make a, make a decision. And maybe, apparently, maybe they didn't make the right one. I don't know. I mean, there are going to be assumed risks. We have assumed risks in this business. We are not in an absolute safe business. And that's something that we all have to understand. But... You have to go in with the aspect, and I've said over and over that the term scene safety, pardon this, sucks. Okay, scene safety is a, it's a terrible phrase that we use because you go in, you assess the scene, and if there's no like power lines coming down, there's no you know uh, person with a gun standing right there, you're like, okay, it's fine. But we know that's not accurate. We have to have go in with a, a situational awareness attitude where 360 degrees around us, 100 percent of the time, we're evaluating the scene to make sure that there's not something there that can hurt us because. Who knows where that shooter is? And we have to go in with that thought process when we go into that scene. The police officers hopefully are going to have your back there. You, know, you get in there, you start treating them, they're going to watch you. They're going to watch around you, hopefully protect you. Does that mean that the shooter can't come back? No. Does it mean the shooter can come in and start shooting? Absolutely. But it's an assumed risk to a point. What we do is not safe. I think what we do in terms of driving, I think there's more EMTs and, and paramedics and firefighters killed yearly with ambulance accidents than there are that are shot on scene that's considered unsafe. That's a very good point. That's a, actually a great point. Um, so I'm not going to get into the education for a minute, but I want I want other people to weigh in what they how they feel about this. Well, the thing that bothers me most about it is um, the statement. First of all, I, I put in the situation I would have gone in. Second of all, um, the, the the big issue that I have is is you read this article about the cops. Um, basically flagging down the ambulance who was parked in sight of the scene. Um, in my opinion, first of all, that's, that's very poor scene management by the ambulance. If you're going to wait, don't sit down the street a half a block down, just kind of waiting to see what happens. I mean, you, you, you stage yourself out of sight. You, you stage yourself someplace where you're not going to put yourself at risk. And I, I think that that move right there was a little too close if you're going to take that policy. Um, Reading what I'm reading in this article, though, um, Kyle's exactly right. There's an assumed risk that you have to take. And when you know the, the scene is bad like this and, and you know that you have PD on scene and you know that they are in over their heads, sometimes you got to go in and bail them out. And that might be a, a quick load, get in there, get out and go. But, you know, you do have somebody else there who does have your back. So um, I think they made the wrong choice by, by sitting there. I, I think that you got to think outside the box a little bit sometimes. I. When when I I just finished reading the article and it, my hunch is there's probably some sort of like bigger problems between police and fire in this community, and that there's some sort of other tensions that uh, manifested themselves in this incident. That I I don't know, Chris, you're closer to it. Is is everything usually like uh, hunky dory, or is there a lot of stress between? 
police and fire in that community? Do you know? Well, um, I will preface this by saying that my, my brother-in-law is an Aurora cop. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> I have to be nice. I actually know a yeah. lot of the Aurora fire guys. And, you know, I've never, they don't at least publicly say there's tension. So okay. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen where they battle um, the Aurora fire chief got fired a few years ago for going playing golf on company time. But other than that, there was really no, um, right. I mean, that's really never been an issue that I've seen in the community anyway, or at least it's not drug into the media. Let's put it that way. I'll, I'll ask and, him, I'll ask him over Thanksgiving dinner. What he thinks? Right. <laughs> and then have him give me a call. Okay. Uh, just kidding. Um, you know, it, I also got to thinking as I was reading this of like, maybe, the police officers should have some training or some instruction of, you know, extricating a patient from the scene instead of uh, trying to secure a scene. So it's EMS can, can come to the scene. Maybe they need to bring the patient out of the scene, which they eventually did, but maybe that could be more of the standard of, well, if you don't know where the, the shooter is that, you know, you have to get the patient to here and then the ambulance will swoop in and do some sort of really fast load and then depart the scene. Um, you know, I haven't taken any sort of tactical EMS training, but I've seen these vehicles where you can like drive the vehicle over the top of the injured officer and then open a trap door and lift them up into the vehicle and then drive away or something. And, you know, maybe that kind of thing in urban areas where you have that type of violence might be a more interesting situation of, well, the officers have to be able to get the patient from point A to point B, where the ambulance will do a fast load and then leave the scene. The thing is, is in terms of tactical medicine, the number one treatment for the patient is eliminate the threat. So the patient's going to lay there until they eliminate the threat. It, once it, the threat is either eliminated or that area has been secured, then people can move in. You have to look at the point of view is that if you only have a couple of officer, officers, to carry a person out takes a bit of manpower. And I sure. would rather have my manpower focused on making sure that the gunman doesn't return, clearing the home, clearing the residents to get people in there to get them the help. So really care is not the priority of law enforcement in a situation like this. I know we, you know, we hate to you know, say, oh, let's save lives, but you know, you've got to eliminate that threat before he takes more lives. Can I can I state the obvious thing? That anytime I've gone into an quote-unquote active shooter situation where the person ran, they're not running back to shoot the guy again. Because, you haven't been where we are. Well, we've okay. had that. We've actually, we've, I understand, Chris, yeah, and you're right. But Most of the time, most of the time. Of, a lot of gangs will come back. We actually had shootings in, in, in hospitals here because they're coming back to eliminate that member and you're right i mean most of the time you're probably looking at probably 90 percent of the time they're not going to return but there is a potential matter of fact we had a I, uh, face-to-face with the shooter i agree with everything that was said there's two things that i'd, I'd really kind of like to mention here uh one of them would be that you know we we don't know what this company's huh? what the, what this department's policies are. Oh. I have worked for some services that unless they hear the word "scene safe," it is against company policy to approach. You know, I've seen that happen. But also the other thing too is you know the public perception of EMS. We have this we have this perception, and it's is propagated by the TV and everything else that you know we run into these situations and we 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 do this high adrenaline stuff, but. You know, a lot of times that's not us, and that's not actually what we do. But in in their case, you're right, Jim, is that their policy is they don't proceed in until they hear the words seen safe. And that's what's being brought under fire right now is the, the officers were like, get in here. They didn't use the word seen safety. But when it comes down to a situation like this, a stressful situation, especially for someone who's not trained in medicine, a lot of that stuff goes out of their out of their heads, and how well was that policy related to the officers? And I think that's where policy and guidelines has to be looked at. That is a stupid policy. If if the cop says come, it doesn't matter. I mean, the the assumption should be that they've done everything within their power to say it's clear, and we want I mean, you here now. 
you know, I agree with the fact that it's a stupid policy. I just, like I said, I mentioned the fact that I work for services where that is the policy, and it's it's aggravating and it's frustrating. But ultimately, you know, you work for them, so you kind of have to adhere to it. Right, and that's the thing I was thinking about is like this. You know, you've got policies and you've got a chain of command, and you don't want people in the field sort of making selective decisions about what rules they follow and and what rules they don't. And certainly there's uh, some discretion that we could all take, but, um, you know, it seems like in a potentially dangerous situation with an unknown shooter, that's the exact time that you want people to be adhering to policies, especially when it sounds like, well, I'm interpreting the, the quote from the officer was that he was yelling into the radio or under duress and you know, if if you're on this premise of we we're using the secret password seen as safe, and you've got somebody that's yelling at you under dress and not using that code, then do you know is that officer is he being held hostage or something like that? And you know, I guess I want people to follow the rules and not throw out the rules um, when it seems convenient. Well, here's the big thing. I mean, you you have a shooter potentially on foot, I believe it's stated in the article, in the area, where do you think the safest place is? You think it's at the scene or you think it's a block away down the road? Next to the patient. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's what I say too because, you know, that all that – I mean, who's to say that active shooter doesn't see the ambulance sitting down the street or the engine and say, hey, let's start popping off shots at the people that are coming? I, I don't know. I mean, it's happened. It certainly has. Right. Greg also said in our chat, good news is the guy lived. So that's Well, there's also an interesting thing here about, uh, you know, the whole like uh, trauma triage criteria that it's unlike he had extremity gun wounds and a gunshot to the face. But as the the victim was awake, um, at least that's how I read it in the in the article, like maybe there was a lot of blood, but. Was he actually like dying in front of them? You know, there's no sort of like story of exactly how bad off he was. The good news was he lived. Greg, I kind of wondered also if there's any extenuating circumstances that we might might not know about. You know, assuming these are competent providers, you know, um, just based on past practices and stuff. What have they done in the past and uh, just kind of wonder if there's extenuating circumstances that makes us not quite, quite get this whole, whole puzzle together. Well, and I think that that's what Greg was alluding to earlier is maybe there's some, some tension between the two, and that's highly possible. So, ah, well, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to belabor this story because I think that, um, you know, because later on in the article it talks about how it's failed before, and you know, quite honestly, I hear. Sometimes, even in our service, where the dispatcher says, oh, police want you to stay back. It's an unconscious guy in the hallway. Why do I need to stay back? I mean, you know, I mean, there is that give and take of sometimes the police officers can be overly protective uh, to a, to almost a detriment to the patient. So there has to be a happy medium um, somewhere where the police officers aren't necessarily, you know, it's an un- I, I've gone on Chris. tons of unconscious guys in the hallway of a, of a hotel. If it's in a hotel and they're unconscious, they're probably drunk at 4 a.m. That's Chris, what we Here's the thing, though, on that, is you may not be aware of all the information that the law enforcement has. And it may not be information going on with that call. A lot of times we have documentation of warnings at certain areas, certain homes, certain hotels, certain areas that we have to be use cautious going in. We may have rec- reports of weapons at the uh, address, violent you know, individuals who are not happy to see us when we arrive at the scene. And these are kept in records that a lot of times services don't have, but law enforcement do. Being a, a police-based EMS service, I'm aware, I've been, I've learned these things over time. So a lot of times they'll say that there's a an F7, which means that there's a warning or a note about that that scene. And we want people to hold back. And we tell people to hold back. And that not all that information is relayed to the... Uh, ambulance services for various reasons. A lot of times they don't want this information to go out over the air. It comes through on computer. So 
you have to be aware of that as well. Okay, fine, cop. Uh, yeah, well, and <laughs> Sorry, Kyle, that, you, make a great, you make a great point there, Kyle, with that. And uh, an agency I worked for before, um, that would come across or dispatch may just say, take a look at the uh, notes attached you know, that are at the bottom of the MDC or something like that or at the top. And you could click, and that would that would tell you that maybe you know that there's been a history of of weapons and guns, and you know this is a regular place that PD comes to, and uh, um, then you're knowing that information before you get there. And I think that's that's a good point. A lot of the time, and especially with these news articles, we we don't know the whole story. Good. Yeah, I can tell you time that sometimes the information relayed to the ambulance crews is not exactly what we get. Whether that's a, a failure on communication from our side or failure on the on the services side, um, but sometimes all the information is not accurate. So a lot of times we tell them just just stage so we figure out what's going on. All right. Well, very cool. Well, I um, I'm going to take this opportunity to take a break, and since we're not on video this week, I will just tell you about Audible.com and Boingo, who have generously given us some free stuff to give away. This week's winner is Melissa Hale. Um, she did not tell me where she's from, and I'm, I apologize, Melissa, as you emailed me twice, and I can't uh, quite remember where you're from. But uh, Melissa, she listens to podcasts all the time, and she is the winner of two free audiobooks from audible.com and a free hour of wireless from boingo.com, 100,000 different locations from boingo. Um, this audible.com is absolutely free. There's no strings. You don't have to enter a credit card. And um, it's actually a VIP code. So I'll send those off to you, Melissa, and enjoy those books. And we'd like to thank Audible.com and Boingo for generously donating to our podcast and our listeners. Um, you know, here's the other bit of news this week. EMS Garage fan page. Over a thousand likes. Yes. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. Uh <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying not to read the chat at the same time. So if you like our podcast, go to our Facebook page or our Twitter feed or actually all of them and like us. And also go to the new EMS Radio uh, Facebook page and like us there as well. I'm going to work on the EMS Radio page on our break. Um, I actually have a few days off here and hope to get that a little bit more robust and add all the other new podcasts, including EMS Research Podcast and a new podcast from Brad and Matt. So can you guys fill us in real quick on the new podcast we'll be doing very, very soon? Brad or Buck? Uh, sure, Matt. <laughs> sure. You want to talk? You want me to? Uh, yeah, I'll just uh, I'll say that the new podcast we're working on is, uh, is dealing with uh, medical direction and EMS generally. Um, hopefully, we hope to have uh, physicians, a physician panel and uh, a paramedic panel uh, to kind of discuss current trends, issues, and medical direction, issues related to the medical director. Brad, if you had anything to add to that, you can go ahead on that. Uh, no, I, I, you kind of you kind of said it all there. It's uh, it's been something that uh, in discussing with a few people, it's kind of lacking in the podcast world. And uh, Chris, you said you had heard that a few people maybe had some interest, and uh, I think it'll be good for we'll hit a crowd of. Uh, medical directors that are um, still trying to to learn the job and and get a better understanding of uh, what their involvement, what their role can be in things, and then also to get uh, the medics and them listening and understanding the importance of uh, keeping your medical director involved and listening to them and and how that that the medical direction can drive the service and you can actually uh, with a a great medical director who's involved, you can end up with a, a much better service than maybe you had before. Hopefully by way of uh, a couple of the, the medical directors that we've been in contact with so far that uh, we have a good, a good base to work with uh, a good, good way to get started here. So, and you guys have some pretty good guests coming up on that show um, as well as some regular people. I've heard maybe Dr. Wesley, Dr. Meyer, Dr. Myers, sorry, um, and maybe a few others. I'm hoping I'm hoping to reach out to Ed Rocked and ask him if he'll come on as well. He's a, I've known him and I know several people on this podcast know him pretty well. So I'm hoping to get him on at least once or twice for you guys. Um, 
I think a national medical director for a large um, corporation would be kind of fun to have on. And he's also done excellent. it. Well, and he's also done it for Austin Travis County, and um, and I and we can also probably get the Austin Travis County medical director on as well. So I think it'd be a lot of fun to get some. I think it's going to be a good podcast from that aspect of just giving our medical director something new and different. And I'm going to share the podcast with our medical director and say, Hey, there's other people out there that you can reach out to and, and listen to. And so I can't wait. I'm excited. Excited. Uh, yeah, we're, uh, I'm very excited too. And as I believe Matt is, and with some of the people we've talked to so far and have kind of agreed to, uh, uh, have involvement, including Dr. Wesley, um, you know, and he's well-known, and, I mean, people read his articles nationwide, worldwide at times, I'm sure. And so uh, to have someone on that stature involved, I think that's uh, that's fantastic. But, uh, you know, we're, we're continuing to, to search and to look for uh, those other medical directors that are out there that are very well-known, but then also, um, you know, a medical director of a service that – he isn't writing for the magazines or anything, but to, you know, any of them, to have them involved and to get the different perspectives of different service sizes, different involvements, and uh, how they go about uh, their daily function and daily operations. Very cool. So look for that hopefully launching within the month, I would assume. <laughs> it's hard to produce. It's really hard. So just just, uh, we'll we'll help you through that. We'll we'll hold your hand as we go. Um, we also have leadership. Is uh, I'm gr- I'm woefully behind in posting. Although you will notice that there are leadership podcasts that post the same day as this one uh, from now on. Um, apparently, they've gone to a weekly format, which is pretty cool. And that's with Chris Sabalero. Always EMS Educast. First few moments PDU. And boy, I, I'm probably forgetting one or two in oh EMS research podcast. So there are so many out there that it's so exciting um, to see that we're uh, becoming bigger as an EMS radio family. So uh, I now I want to talk about the article from Kelly Grayson. Can they refuse your care? And this is an article that he wrote for EMS One. Gosh, this was almost a month ago. And we were going to have Kelly on, and due to some scheduling conflicts on his part and mine, we couldn't. But uh, if you have a chance, go to our website and click the link and read his article, and then you can you can talk about it. So tell me, um, have you guys had a chance to read the article, and what do you guys feel about some of his um, suppositions in the article about when a person can or can't refuse your care? I like it. I, I think that... Uh the ability to review, refuse care goes far and beyond the ANO times three, ANO times four concept, um, and I, I think that we rely on that way too much. I, I think that you know, you can find a situation where somebody knows who they are, where they are, when it is, and you know, see little purple bunnies hopping around the house, but they're ANO times three, so you know, what, what are you supposed to do? You know, and I, I, I like the the concept of of mini mental mental exams and uh questionnaires um i've seen it uh, or i've heard about it being used in other systems rather effectively and i, I really think it gives you better uh, you know a better view of of people's decision making ability and and where they're really at i agree with you scott i mean i think the one thing that we forget also to add to it is are they acting appropriately you know we had a guy just recently that who's answering all the questions but one minute he's faking a seizure Next minute, he stands up, jumps onto his bed, starts rallying a whole bunch of numbers. But he could tell it was bizarre. But he could tell us, answer all the questions. And they're like, well, we're going to have him refuse. I'm like, how can you let him refuse? You tell me that is appropriate. That is not appropriate behavior. And I think that's what it comes down to is, as well is are they acting appropriate? And you may not always be able to you know, find out from family or friends if that's appropriate. That's where I think Kelly's article can you know, help you out with that. But – did you guys learn in in paramedic school to um, do several tests for stroke patients along the along the idea of Cincinnati stroke scale? But you know, testing the cranial nerves and at the same time testing people's recall. So whenever I have somebody where I question whether they can actually refuse care, I make them. You know, recite the following. The brown dog ran quickly across the road. And remember three things for me. And I do this at the beginning of my 
of my exam and I say, okay, I want you to remember three things for me, an orange, a triangle, and a bridge. Just remember those things and I'll come back to them. And uh, that's easy for me to remember <laughs> because I've been doing it a while. It's, it reminds me of the Golden Gate Bridge for some reason anyway because it's really orange, not red. Um, so I remember those things for me and then I have the patient recite those back to me at the end. And if they go, well, I think it was, you know, and they get it close or whatever, then we do other other mental exams. But the uh, the one that he was talking about was the Folstein test, and it's a 30-point questionnaire used to test people's cognitive skills. Um, is it something that we have time to do? I don't know. In a busy system, do you well, have time to do that? Yes, you do have time to do it because... Um, I think that the the way of thinking for us shouldn't be the, well, you know, you don't need to go to the hospital or they're not wanting to. Let's hurry this up and get a signature because, you know, there might be another patient that called, so it could be more important. I think we need to be focused on that this is our patient right now, and we need to do everything to make sure that they're treated properly and get the care that they need. And if they're refusing, we need to do everything to make sure that we've done a proper and full assessment to make sure that our documentation and our PCR reflect that. So in the future, if something went wrong later than the day that we suddenly don't wind up in court, um, you know, I think there's, there's too often in busy systems sometimes where the concern is more about the call that might come in once they're released from the scene as opposed to, uh, actually doing the, the care for the, the the patient and the call that they're on at that very moment. I hate that, by the way. I hate services that are worried about the next call because you have a call right now. <laughs> like, you I know what? The service, oh. you, you want the call. You want to be on the big one. You want to be on that shooting where the police are calling you into the scene. That's where you want to be. Oh, That's where people want to be. They're, they're thinking it's going to be the big one. Not this case that we're actually on right now. <laughs> This this idea about a patient being able to refuse and their orientation, uh, Joe Clark, who I'm pretty sure has been on this podcast in the past, he researches um, at the University of Cincinnati if uh, patients are having strokes and ways to detect strokes. And he's told me about some interesting work that he's doing that really sort of gets at this about the, the sort of subset of stroke patients that um, – are in denial about their sy- symptoms, are able to demonstrate some orientation and have really subtle um, stroke signs that end up refusing care um, and then end up later, you know, having a full, you know, they've actually had a stroke, but because it doesn't get treated, then all of a sudden they have pretty serious problems. And it might be interesting, Chris, to get him back on the show again to talk about that sort of stroke detection work he's doing um, related to the the patient's, you know, presentation that they're, they're not being outed, if you will, with the pre-hospital assessment scale. Well, and was he the guy, in, you know, after 113 podcasts, I kind of <laughs> lose track, but is he the guy that uh, was saying that they're getting ready to do ultrasound um, some type of ultrasound thing where they can actually detect strokes in the field. Um, and yeah. they, were, they were piloting that in Australia. Is that right? Um, I, I, I'm not, sh- I know he's, he's doing all sorts of different things. You know, when I last saw him, he was telling me about basically something that would be deployed on a smartphone application and be able to communicate with some electrodes you would apply to the patient's That's head. It. That's the one. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so, but, I can, uh, you know, uh, he's on Twitter and he's got a blog and I'd be happy to send that to you so you can put him in the show notes and maybe ask him to be back on the show at some point. That'd be great because that was a really fascinating podcast when he was telling us about that. I'm like, and it's really stuck with me like, man, that could be, you know, it's just one more tool in the kit to say, you know, maybe not to refuse somebody, but to talk them into going. And I think it's just another way for us to provide better patient care. It's a tool. It's not a it's not a way to diagnose patients. Don't get me wrong, but you know, I think we can we can get there eventually. Um well, and so some of the things that I 
that worry me about refusing care, and I've done a bunch of refusals in in 20 years, um, is that's the one that's going to come back to haunt you. It's not the, it's not unfortunately the um, the big call that's going to come back to bite you and get sued for. It's the person that you refuse maybe when you shouldn't have, or or the person that was actually worse than what you thought, or. Uh, any one of number of reasons. I mean, you can be sued for anything, but I think this is the one that really stands out in my risk management role that scares me to death. I last week just finished doing a two-hour presentation on dealing with refusals and non-transport of patients, uh, and that was the big focus. And one of the points I hit on is that uh, your your report for a refusal or for a non-transport, however you want to refer to it, should at times almost be more in-depth and be longer narrative so you make sure you've covered all of your bases uh, than what a regular PCR should be. Because, uh, you know, the philosophy is if you do transport the patient to the hospital, in an assessment, if you missed something that was small or minor or whatever it may be, uh, in the end, you're still kind of covered because there's a full assessment that comes through at the hospital setting. Whereas if you only do, you know, this mini fast paced, you really hardly do an assessment at all. You just want that signature and you go, um, you know, in, in the end, then there's nothing that's going to recognize or, or find that problem. And then that completely falls back onto your shoulders. And, uh, I think that the, the, the refusal, report is the one report that is not focused on enough in a lot of agencies and by a lot of medics and it and it really should be because like Chris like you said that's the one that will get you into the most amount of trouble you look at your typical EMT or paramedic program and look at what you do on a daily basis we drive an ambulance we talk on the radio we talk to people we interact with the community and we write reports now take those five things and go back to your education. How much time did you spend in your course on those five things? You probably spent more time learning how to put on a triangular bandage and a traction splint than you did writing a report. So true. So true. Yeah, well, and, and show me when you open up the textbook, um, the what chapter is it that's completely devoted to the non-transport of a patient and and how to properly obtain the right information and to know what to look for. And, you know, that's, that's not looked at at all because the education and the textbooks are still focused on every single patient should go to the hospital. But and, in essence, you know, it's, not the, it's not the textbook that should be running the course, okay? It's the instructor. It's up to the instructor to look at the textbook, look at the curriculum and say, okay, where are their issues? Where do we need to supplement these areas? And that's what education is supposed to be. It's not the textbooks. Textbooks should not, even though they sometimes do, textbooks should not drive the program. No, I agree, And but I think a lot of the time the textbooks uh, do drive the program, and I had a discussion about this last night with a, a whole other topic, and I think I got to go, guys. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> then he's getting a call. So, well, and I agree that the textbook doesn't drive, or shouldn't drive the course, but is it because that we don't have oftentimes real educators teaching EMT or paramedic courses? We have people that were EMTs and paramedics that have now become, um, I don't want to call them pseudo-educators, but they've become educators because... They're instructors. We, they're instructors. Yeah, they're instructors. That's a better There's way to put it. instructors and educators. Right. There's a difference. That's, right. now, That's a very good point. You don't have to be formally educated to be an educator. I think there's some people out there who have very little education background that are educators. I think there's some people out there who with education backgrounds that are only instructors. Completely agree. Completely agree. But, but yes, you're right. But but I think that it begs the issue that um, people need to understand. There has to be an understanding of what we do in the field, but there also has to be an understanding that we... Um, uh, there has to be a give and take is what I'm saying. The textbook isn't always right and the field isn't always right. And there has to be, there has to be some ability to do that. And we always go back to education on this podcast, which drives me nuts because we have an education podcast. Um, but the, in order to move our field forward, we've got to have longer 
we have to have people that are better educated, not just trained. And that's, I think, part of the issue too, is we have, we have paramedic training programs. We have very few paramedic education programs. Just I have to understand that textbook is one or two people's opinions and views on the field. Very good point. I, uh, I was trying to jump in earlier, but I, I just couldn't get in. So um, I just did want to say one thing real quick, and that is the narrative thing burns me so bad because we get people out of paramedic class and they're writing three-sentence narratives. And it's like, how can you describe that entire patient's condition, what you did, and what the result was in three sentences? Uh, you know, and it, it goes back to, you know, when when – when we're in class is that, you know, we're lucky if there's a paragraph dedicated to narratives. And a lot of times it's never elaborated on beyond that point. Well, and that's a very good, I think that's an, I think you bring up a good issue that people, and I think it's a, it's a, it's going to be more and more our difficulty as administrators of systems and as educators and in a in a society where we have less and less communication even though we have more and more communication it's going to be harder for us to teach people how to write and paint a picture and i think that that's going to that's going to be ultimately our one of our things that i don't think just our industry is going to have to deal with but industries across the board are going to have to deal with you know if i can send an update on twitter in 140 characters or less that doesn't Necessary that brevity, I can say a lot there, but it doesn't really paint a picture. And I think that that's the that's what we're really going to start dealing with as we start seeing more and more um, people come up through the ranks, if you will, the seventeen, sixteen, fifteen, fourteen year olds that are getting ready to move into whatever career they want to. This is how they've grown up, and this is all they know, and. Uh, and they're ready to move into this. So how do we teach them how to write things that paint that picture? And you're absolutely right, James. It's hard to, it's hard to do that in three sentences or less. So still back on the question, can they refuse care? And part of its documentation. Um, I think that we've talked also before about documentation and be, becoming a good liar, quote unquote. Uh, I think good documentation can make people, can paint a different picture than really what you were presented with. So I think that there has to be a bit of a gut check too with that. So I don't know. Other thoughts? Maybe nobody else. I think we, uh, (laughs) I think we need to better understand and utilize when it comes to refusals, the resources that we do have at our discretion. Um, I've gone as far as to call a patient's cardiologist and, Put the patient on the phone with the nurse practitioner to explain to them that that having a blood pressure of of sixty over twenty when you're laying down is not a good thing, um, and when she still refused and and she was still adamant about not going to the hospital, that was clearly documented in the PCR. Um, it's all about the steps that we take and it's all about what we do, and I think that we need to stay focused. That with these tools like the ones that Kelly Grayson gave us, that's not just a liability thing. That, that's to make sure that you're doing the right thing. And I, I think that we need to, to realize that the report writing is there for, you know, those, for lack of a better term, 12 angry men and women. Um, but the actual tools that we use to, to help make these decisions are for the patient's best interest. And it all comes down to patient care. Before you, before you go, okay, uh, Greg, you got to go in a second. So do I, but, um, and I know Kyle is ready to just vomit all over the mic because he's ready to go. But one last thing, um, I think a refusal is more than a checklist, and we have to we have to teach people how to um, <laughs> and we have to teach people how to how to be true clinicians and to make good medical decisions for patients. Just more than a checklist. Anyway, go, Kyle. We have five minutes, and then we're done. So go, Scott. I guess the question I'm going to ask you and and is you got someone with that low of blood pressure. I can argue that is that how do we know that her brain was perfused at that blood pressure to make a sound judgment, you know, with that, you know, that low 60 over 40, I mean, there's probably barely even enough map in there to get that going. So that's the thing I'm going to look at. If I was a lawyer, you know, if she were to succumb to her issues there is that how would you document that she was rational enough to make the decision to understand 
her condition. Mm. Yeah, that that is true. And and uh, again, I mean, it's it's you know you're also looking over the course of of a thirty minute um, interaction, you know, thirty forty minute interaction with this patient as we tried to convince her to go to the hospital, and uh, it was a tough decision to make. And it was through MedCon, it was through her her primary care doctor, and and everybody knew what was taking place, and everybody knew what was going on, and. Um, unfortunately at the time we could not get the bank backing that we, you know, wanted to, to, to essentially drag this woman out of her house against her will. Everybody kind of agreed that, well, you know, she's, she's lucid and, and she's making sense as she's speaking. And as much as we wanted to, to drag her away and take her, um, we were not empowered to do so by those above us. I think the thing you have to look at is, you know, there's three things when a patient refuses. First of all, is do they have the legal capacity to refuse? You know, that comes under, you know, state laws on that. I also think they need to look at the, do they have the mental capacity to refuse? Uh, are they consular and oriented? Are they acting appropriately? Can they understand their situation that they're in? Can they understand, you know, I, actually, I'm sorry, I skipped ahead of myself. You know, the mental capacity, do they have the ability to to interact and communicate with you and, and then leads us to the next thing. Do they have the knowledge or understanding of what could be happening? You have to look at those three things before you allow them to refuse. Now, Scott, question is, was that an automatic blood pressure cuff or was it manual? That was manual. I, I do not use auto. We don't, we don't have automatics in our um, system. Okay. Okay. So we could spend all day on this. I know. Um, I know it's so much sorry. fun. We'll I haven't do, I haven't debated with Scott in a long time. We'll do it. We'll do it again. I promise. <laughs> I miss it, Kyle. My hope is we can get actually get Kelly Grayson on. And if you want to read a an interesting blog, go to Kelly Grayson's blog, the A Day in the Life of an Ambulance Driver, or just read his stuff on EMS One. You can also um, find him pretty much everywhere. He's a great guy. Although he did call me a hobbit, so that's that's all I have to say about. Kelly Grayson. Anyway, uh, uh, thanks for joining us this week. We did not get to the one really I wanted to talk about, which was IAFC launches new EMS resource guide. I'm sure we'll get to that next week and have a lot more other issues to talk about. Uh, Mr. James Warmoth, where can people find you? Maybe you we can't. There we go. Now we can hear you. Okay. My microphone. Uh, we're still losing you. That's okay. We'll come back to you. Mr. Greg Freeze, where can people find you? Uh, people can find me at CenterLearn, where I'm the director of education, and they can go to CenterLearn, C-E-N-T-R-E-L-E-A-R-N.com or blog.centerlearn.com, or even uh, find us on Facebook and, of course, on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter as well. Happy to make connections with EMS professionals from around the world. So thanks for letting me be on the garage and I've always pestered you to do a daytime show, and now that you did, I felt like, oh, I better get on this one. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for doing that. You know, I uh, I would do it more if I could, and uh, maybe I can do f- some Fridays. Maybe I'll rotate between Thursday night and Fridays now because uh, okay. I'm, I'm working on that. So thanks a lot, Greg. Uh, Mr. Scott Keir, where can people find you? Um, I can be found on my blog, 2010ems.blogspot.com. That's EMS in the New Decade. And on Twitter, always at MedicSBK. Very cool. Mr. Brad Buck had to leave, but I'll give him a plug. I don't remember his blog. Does anybody remember his blog? He's got some new blog thing he's doing. Anyway, I don't know. Brad Buck, just email him. I don't know. Medic SBK. You know, you're Medic SBK. Who, who's Brad on Twitter? I don't remember. Brad is CF. Hang on. I've CF, got it here. CF, 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 CF Medic 33. CF Medic 33. Just Twitter him and he'll find you. Matt, where can people find you? Do you have a blog? I do. I actually just started writing a blog uh, about a month ago, and it is theimedic.blogspot.com. I'm also on Twitter at, at mdfoltzmedic. So uh, stop by and leave a comment or anything. Thank isn't, you. Isn't that a little uh, pompous for you to say I medic? Really? I mean, seriously? No, I'm teasing. <laughs> Dude, I'm teasing you totally. <laughs> Is that a play on iRobot? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> to be honest with you, it was uh, kind of a trying to look for a blog name, and I thought, well, hey, I like iPhones. I like Macs. Uh, Why not? So it's kind of so, so the technology a little bit, too. So, so. You, so you're the Apple of the a little, the, bit, a little yeah, bit, yeah. I like that. I like that. No, that's good. Um, and we did get, we actually got Brad on a Mac. That was cool. Uh, so, James, are you there? Can you talk now? 
Yellow rubber. Can you hear me? Yes, now we can hear you. All right, I had to backhand the microphone. Nice. Uh, you can find me at yellowrubberducky.squarespace.com. Very and cool. uh, I just wanted to let everyone know I might be starting up a show pretty soon. I'm going to keep it secret until I find out exactly, but it's possible within the next few weeks. Nice. Very cool. I think we've talked about it, so I'm hoping that it's what I'm thinking it is. It'll be cool. Um, so anyway, very cool. Thanks, James. I appreciate it. And Kyle David Bates. Life up close and personal at blogspot.com for Brad. There you go. Life up close and personal at blogspot.com. That's a long. I, I'm a fan of short URLs, man. Got to gotta slap Buck around that, or Brad around that for that. All right. Hey, Kyle, where can we people find you? Besides right everywhere. Now, everywhere. Sitting in my chair everywhere, it seems like. Oh, you can find me over at kylededbates.com, at imagemedic on Twitter, firstfewmoments.com. Managing the Scene is our podcast and educational site, which hopefully in the beginning of the year there will be some surprises coming up. And then on, shut up, Chris, PDU, P-E-D-I-U.com for the pediatric podcast with Dr. Lou Romig. We've been taking a little bit of a break from that, just trying to get everyone's schedules. We'll be recording on 12-1, so hopefully that week will be up. We'll have Dr. Peter Antevy from the Hantevy Method on to talk about drug dosing for kids. Very cool. And uh, one last shout-out for one of my good friends who um, has been starting to help us with some voiceover work. Her name is Michelle Marzo, and she has a large acting background and if you need if you need some voiceover work contact her and i'll give you her email if you need just email us at emsgarage.com um she is she does some pretty funny voices and she's trying to get some cartoon stuff so she's actually pretty cool uh and i am chris montera your host and eternally grateful and thankful that you are listening to us during your time at work your your drive-in whatever it is and uh, we just really wanted to say thanks. If you, um, lastly and certainly not least, if you want to be entered into the drawing for our next show, which will be next week, thank you, uh, for Boingo or Audible, just email us or call on the phone, 303-720-6001, emsgarage at gmail.com. Tweet me, Facebook me, whatever you want, and I appreciate it. Have a great week. Hi, Greg. Greg Greg. Cool. Very cool. (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome. (laughs) Oh, how you been, man? Oh, I've been uh, I've been really good. I think uh, life is really good. Right on. And uh, Scott Keir set me up the other day for like my probably top ten tweet ever. Oh, that was Uh, great. I appreciated that <laughs> little piece of magic, and uh, yeah, so all's really good. You guys, how are you all? Great, and I'm so excited for turkey. Love turkey. So, Greg, did you get anything? Did you get anything out there in the tree stand? You having deer? I, you got something I, first day, didn't you, Greg? Yeah, at uh, seven forty-five, I was able to harvest a wily whitetail. And it's at the butcher shop right now. I we're harvest. not gonna have like you went out there with, it's like you went out there with your combine and took out a deer. <laughs> yeah. It was okay. I warned him every day, I planted him. I hey, did I the hit it. You and shot it. it. You killed it. Uh Kyle, I like to say that I inflicted uh massive lethal chest wall trauma. Nice. That's better, yeah. And actually, the deer was so close to me that I saw, like, blood and fur explode from its chest wall. Excellent. Was <laughs> uh, it done, like, like, in slow motion? Like, no. It does. I, I mean, there is a certain, like, sense of uh, slow motion, yes. Excellent. Uh, but it's also, I, I mean, I'm not a cold-blooded killer. It is... Uh, it does cause considerable emotional conflict for me to uh, take life. 
And Did you want to go over and put direct pressure on the wound? Or <laughs> <laughs> he's got the open chest seal. He's popping it. <laughs> it was uh, a fourteen gauge in the chest. I'll save you. This was uh, bilateral chest wall trauma in and out, and um, I couldn't have gotten to it fast enough to apply a chest wall seal. <laughs> Not much you can do for the thirty odd six. Yeah, this this twelve gauge is what. Oh, twelve gauge! Dang, yeah. dude. At very close range, it was. With it was, it, well, no, with uh, extreme self doubt. Self, I love hunting and I love the whole experience of a guy's weekend, but it's also uh, it is conflicting for me as well too. So we can expect you in the next year or two that the conflict will become so bad that you'll become a vegetarian, Greg. I went through that phase already. That was college. Vegetarian, second communist. Meat is so good. I'm glad you're past that now. I can't kill anything either, Greg. I'm with you. I can't even gut a fish. So there you go. Well, I am able to. There's special talent with gutting a fish. It's too gross. Oh. I'm such a weenie. Chris here, uh, we open next next week for shotgun or two weeks. I can't remember. But when we do our when we do our big cut oh. with all the deer that we get, I'll snap pictures. I'll send them to you throughout the day. Mm, let's let's not. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>